Um, so Lauren Bagel with Allsteel, past president, and I get the pleasure of introducing your speaker, Spencer Levy. Um, Spencer serves as a global client strategist and senior economic advisor for CBRE, um, the largest commercial real estate firm in the world. As we all know, he focuses on client engagement and public-facing activities, including thought leadership work performed in conjunction with CBRE research. He's quoted often in business publications, and he's appeared on television. He's the host of CBRE's podcast, The Weekly Take, which he will shamelessly promote today, um, as he should. Um, Spencer has 27 years of experience in commercial real estate, and in that time, he has served as a lawyer, investment banker, capital markets, and senior research leader. He's also the recipient of several awards, including a two-time winner of Cornet Global's Luminary Award for Excellence in Public Speaking. He leverages this incredible background to deliver his thoughtful analysis, making us laugh, probably cry, and always doing it in a digestible manner that keeps us wanting more. He's a brainiac hailing from Cornell and Harvard, so please welcome Spencer to the stage. Welcome commercial real estate humans. I am Spencer Tron 5000. Know that the age of AI is coming. I will soon be your robot overlord. But you are fortunate today. As today, I'm only here to talk about commercial real estate. You may ask yourself why I'm here. After all, we do have a perfectly fine Spencer Levy here. Well, perfectly fine is no longer good enough. It is statistically proven that the information I provide is more accurate, more insightful, and more humorous. And if we're being honest here, I'm better looking too. Well, hello, Chicago, and thanks for having me back again. Hello. Well, you should know I was here last year and many times before, and I always liked it. Last year we ate at uh, Maggiano's, I believe it was, it was the venue last year, and I will tell you, it was my worst uh, event of the year. And, and the reason was because I'm a huge Italian food fan, and I kept bringing out these platters of chicken parm and eggplant parm right under my nose, and... By the time I got off stage, it was gone. So I'm holding that against you. So what are we going to do today? Today, we're going to talk about what's happening in the world economy, the US economy, what it means for real estate, what it means for Chicago. I'll do this for about 40 minutes, and then we'll take some questions afterwards. And uh, I will do this in my own special way, of course. There'll be a lot of pop culture references, which uh, I've give, got good news and bad news for you, because I stopped listening to music and going to the movies in 1990. So if you're a Swifty, you might want to put on your headphones for part of this presentation. But to begin, let's just start off on a positive note. Why Chicago? Well, let's listen to this guy about why we like Chicago. Imagine a world-class city. What do you see? 
you might see an epicenter of industry. Not one industry, all of them. Recognized throughout the world as a top player in every economic sector, from traditional giants of finance and trade, to tomorrow's innovative tech and life sciences. The kind of industry hub, not with a growing reputation, but a dynastic run of welcoming and backing business. An economic engine whose diverse, young, and highly educated talent pool is its greatest renewable resource. But how does a world-class city lift up that industry strength? Maybe with sheer infrastructure muscle. Unmistakable infrastructure that forms the body of a city, shaping its singular image and breathing in life that animates its frame. Infrastructure whose size, scale, and centrality separates a city from its peers through its very capacity to connect them all. An infrastructure so vital, so unparalleled, that the city and the country invests heavily in its future for the future of the city itself and the world. So that's it then. A remarkable bond of industry and infrastructure makes a city truly world-class, right? Or does it need something else? Let's call it interconnection. The interconnection of a city unified through industry and infrastructure to create a stunning concentration of people and character. An interconnected city of cities, diverse and alive neighborhoods, distinctly themselves, yet all products of a shared home. The interconnection of cultures that bring you within minutes of something extraordinary and delicious from anywhere you stand. Interconnection that brings people together to cheer, to marvel, to feel. And the interconnection that calls its residents to care for the safety and well-being of each other, not through fear and misperception, but credibility, transparency, and community. Industry, infrastructure, interconnection. That's a world-class city. So what makes one of these world-class cities within reach? Actually, that's easy. Affordability. When a city can bring these world-class characteristics without world-class sticker shock, then it becomes something else, something very rare. It enters a class of its own. A livable, iconic metropolis, accessible and welcoming to all, whose reputation the world over only continues to grow. Imagine a world-class city. Imagine Chicago. What that guy said. <laughs> I guess I could drop the mic and just leave now because uh, that's going to be the highlight of today's show. But we're going to keep going just the same. And as I suggested, we're going to do this in my own special way by using pop culture and movies and other references to try to talk about what's going on in a language that I hope all people understand. So let's start with the one song that I think really sums up where we are as an economy today. Every day you give 
Now I start with that Tom Petty song because I know who my peeps are. I see a little head bobbing and I see some significantly blank stares. And you know who you are with those blank stares out there. And for those folks, I got bad news. It's not going to get any better. But why is the waiting the hardest part? Folks, I was up here last year and gave a bunch of predictions and said, the U.S. is going to be in for a tough year in 2023 and interest rates are going to start to drop by the end of the year. But something happened on the way to the apocalypse, and that's something on the way to the apocalypse following the bank failures, Silicon Valley and Signature in March. The Fed and the FDIC jumped in with guns a-blazing. They brought everything they had, and they saved the banking system. They uh, de facto now insure all deposits. And because of that, the economy never fell, and we outperformed by every objective metric in terms of GDP growth, jobs, et cetera. That's the good news. And as a American, I'm happy. I want people to make more money. I want jobs to be strong. But I wear this other hat too. And this other hat is the real estate person hat. And this real estate person hat knows that we need to see a downturn so we see data that can give the Fed the opportunity to drop rates when they have enough objective data to do so. Now, the Fed already said they've pivoted. They said that, well, we're not going to raise rates anymore. But then we get today's inflation report. This morning came a little hotter than we expected, and the market got squirrely again. So we're in for some choppy waters until we see objectively going down again. And then we see the real pivot. Fed downward drop in interest rates will probably happen in March and April. And when that happens... We think people will party like it's 1999. <laughs> Prince, little red Corvette. Once again, lots of blank stares out there. Not going to get any better, folks. Not going to get any better. So what's going to happen? Higher interest rates for longer. And we had thought that they'd be dropping by now, but now we think they will start coming down by March. But why was the market so freaked out last year? No other way to put it. It was the speed by which the short end of the curve went up. I did a presentation in Laguna Beach, <laughs> California, in October. And it wasn't that different than this one. Let me tell you something. That was on the day the 10-year Treasury almost hit 5%. And I did not read the room correctly because people were very nervous. It was like a funeral in that room. It was a multifamily event, and people were like, I'm completely wiped out right now. I don't want to hear any more of your jokes. But that's what happened. The systems was shocked and awed, and it completely dried up liquidity because of the speed of the rise. Not the absolute rise, because 5% short end of the curve is actually not that high historically. But nevertheless, the speed of the rise completely shocked the market, which is why we're in this never-never land that we are today. But we believe that rates are going to start coming down March or April and come down four or five times this year and then come down some more next year. And how fast they come down is a really big question. Now, the good news is we believe they're coming down. The bad news is if they come down faster than we expect, it's because the economy is doing worse than we anticipate. So be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Now, this is the last complicated chart of today's presentation, but it tells a story. And every picture tells a story, don't it? 
What this story is, Rod Stewart, 1975, faces. <laughs> I got them all, man. I keep going. This, story, this picture shows what Wall Street expects the market to do, which is the dotted lines from each of the prior cycles. And the solid line is what actually happened. Uh, with the exception of one cycle, Wall Street was basically always wrong. Now, first of all, uh, not to call people out of the room, but I see some rising professionals over here. You folks know the movie Wall Street? Yes? Michael Douglas, star, blank stares. Okay, let me relate here. Michael Douglas is the same guy who plays the grandfather in the Ant-Man movies. Okay. <laughs> are, we, are we relating now? Are we, still some blank stares over there. Okay. So why does this always happen? Why does this always happen where Wall Street's always wrong? Well, it's because Wall Street are the same people that are selling you the swaps and the hedges against your loan. So if you buy a floater and you want to swap it into fixed rate, you got to buy a hedge. And the hedges on interest rates going up or down. So let me give you a little case study on why Wall Street has incentive to be pessimistic. So I just did a workout for a Middle Eastern client of mine that owns $450 million worth of multifamily assets in the southwestern United States. They bought it using floating rate debt, and they bought an interest rate hedge in 2019. In 2019, that interest rate hedge cost them $500,000. That interest rate hedge came due in March of this year. Anybody want to guess what that hedge cost in March of this year? $25 million. They gave us a call, and what did we do? We did a workout. We stretched out the Freddie Mac loan because the underlying assets were performing well, so we could get a bigger first. And then we brought in $80 million of preferred equity at 12%. The punchline, our client lost $10 million, and they hugged us because they didn't lose 25. The bottom line is hedges are a lot more expensive if you're a lot more pessimistic on where rates are going. So where are rates going? Well, we think rates are going to be dropping. They're about five and a quarter, five and a half percent today at the short end, but dropping to about two and a half by 2026. If you remember last year's presentation, we thought that rates would be down under two by the end of 2025. So two things happen. Because the economy has performed so well, we have pushed out all of our interest rate drop forecasts, and they're not going to drop by as much as they, we thought. And so well, why do I care about this? Well, this is why you care about this. You care about this because for everybody here who does a sale leaseback or does other types of sales transactions, the cap rates that you saw three years ago, you ain't going to see them anytime soon, if ever again. It's going to be a much more, much higher cap rate environment. Three tomatoes are walking down the street. Papa tomato, mama tomato, and baby tomato. Baby tomato starts lagging behind, and Papa tomato gets really angry. Goes back and squishes him. Says, ketchup. Ketchup? Pulp Fiction, I lied. This is a 93 movie, so I did actually see a movie after 1990. Why am I showing you this clip? Because I kind of want to tell you how we got to where we are today. It's because the Fed was playing ketchup or catch-up with the broader economy. 
Now, if you take a look at how the economy has grown in the last 40 years or so, you'll know that in the 80s, we were on a 5%-ish growth trajectory. In the 90s, a 4-ish, 2003-ish, and now down to this 2-ish level. And then we had this COVID shock, and now we might be back to this 2-ish level. What was the COVID shock? Why was it so shocking from an inflationary standpoint? Because of this. Because of this 5-4-3-2-1 economy, the number one thing that scares the Fed isn't inflation, it's deflation. It's prices coming down. You're like, huh? Are prices coming down a good thing? What are all those Walmart ads? Watch out for falling prices. Because if people are in a deflationary economy, people keep their hands in their pockets and they wait to spend till tomorrow when things are cheaper. And who has been going through this for the last 35 years? Japan. Who's got it now? The European Union. And they were afraid that we were going to go through it as well, which is why they kept their foot off the brakes and let the economy run a little bit hotter than they thought to avoid deflation. Unfortunately, they kept their foot off the brake for too long. And this is where we are now. We think that the economy is going to continue to grow, but grow at a much slower rate than we thought before. Why? Because the economy is now going to be on this deflationary environment over the next two to three years, which is going to hurt overall growth. The other thing that's happening in our economy, and this is not to throw older folks under the bus, and you're going to learn about this in just a second, because of the aging U.S. economy, a disproportionate amount of our federal spending is going to increasingly have to go to Medicare, Social Security, other programs. And listen, I want my mom to get that as much as you do, and hell, I want it myself. <laughs> but it is not the most productive use of money if you compare that money to putting it into something else. So that's why we're going to be in a slower growth trajectory unless we see some massive technological improvement. But the bad news is this next slide. The bad news is that big purple blob you see there, that is the excess savings that was in the economy until about six months ago because of COVID. People had, well, too much liquidity in their pockets. And then what happened about six months ago, it went negative. People are now dipping into their savings in order to buy stuff. There is a name for this, names I did not know. FOMO, fear of missing out, and my new favorite acronym, YOLO, you only live once. That's why it's hard to get a cheap vacation. That's why it's hard to get a hotel or a restaurant reservation at a cool place. But you know what I like about this chart? Kind of reminds me of my childhood. You folks remember those McDonald's ads when we were kids, when some of us were kids? When they had Ronald McDonald, Mayor McCheese, the Hamburglar, the Fries guys. Remember that character Grimace? Everybody remember Grimace, the big purple guy? Kind of reminds me of Grimace up there. And anybody know what Grimace represented? I mean, you could tell what the hamburger and the fries were, but does anybody know Grimace actually represented a product? No, but thank you. I okay, I was told, but it could be, it's a good answer. I'm told Grimace represented the shake. He was a shake. We had a shake over here. It's okay, but audience participation still gets points. Thank you very much. But in this chart I spent weeks on, 
and describing the, where the commercial real estate market is today. Y'all get this one? This one require much explanation. That is a Bentley for folks who are not car buffs, about a $400,000 car, and it's some person stuck in the mud, and no, that is not me changing the tire. The market is stuck like this because there's no liquidity, and there's no liquidity because the banks aren't lending to real estate, and if they are, they're lending at nosebleed kind of prices, and what's a nosebleed kind of price? The biggest, best developers in the market, which used to borrow for construction jobs at 65% loan to value at 4 to 5%, are now borrowing at 50% at 10%. The best of them. You can't get an office loan at almost any price, and everything else is more expensive, too. And I guess this is the good news, bad news slides. When we survey our lenders, they tell us that they are at peak illiquidity or close to it right now, but it might be getting better. Might be getting better, but it's not going to get better until these banks clear the bad office loans. And the situation in the banks is worse than you know because people are slowly but surely writing these assets down. If they put them out in the market today on spot market, not to throw Chicago under the bus because I'm a big Chicago fan, but I know that there are several buildings here that are trading for under 100 bucks a foot that are buildings that would have been worth five, $600 a foot a few years ago. That is the severity of the crisis. But if there's a silver lining, we're beginning to see more deals come to market, which is the orange line. Tells us deal flow, how deals are coming to market. But we had a jog in September. September, we thought we were going to jog up, but then we had that spike in the 10-year, which slowed everything down. And then we have these other orange lines, which are a number of BOVs, the broker's opinions of value coming to market. The way that works is a broker opinion of value is given to the broker, they value an asset, and the asset typically comes to market 90 to 120 days later. So the good news is that we're beginning to see some capitulation. But remember what I said last year? Everything I said in Maggiano was, didn't quite come out correctly, so keep this in mind for the rest of today's presentation. Capital Markets, another song. This one is Bring It to Jerome by Bo Diddley. Now, I used the Bo Diddley song, Bring It to Jerome, because I could not find a Tom Petty song that had the name Jerome or Jay in it. But if you're aware of one or another song with Jerome or Jay, I'm all, I'm all ears for that. Well, Jerome is, of course, Jerome Powell or Jay Powell, the most powerful central banker in the world. And which side of the pillow this guy wakes up on is going to determine our fate in 2024. Because if, if this guy finally says, aha, we're past inflation, I'm going to start dropping rates, you know, it's going to get good. But if he's like, uh-oh, data's not here, it's going to get a much longer slog until commercial real estate gets back to more liquid conditions. But there's something else happening in 2024. Anybody else know what it is? Presidential election. Will that have any influence on our buddy Jay Powell? Well, he's not my buddy. He's his buddy. Paul Ryan, former vice presidential candidate, speaker of the house, and a guy I spent a day with a couple of months ago in the great place of Boise, Idaho. And I said, Paul, what's he gonna do? 
Now, I can speculate on what Jay's going to do, but he knows Jay for decades, and they're both in the Aspen Institute, which is like Davos in America. He said, look, Jay Powell doesn't want to get stuck in the James Carville, who was Bill Clinton's political advisor's opinion, that it's the economy stupid. He doesn't want to get stuck with a down economy and says, it's Jay Powell's fault that X or Y got elected. So it will influence him. And how do I know this? Because in 1976, when we had a presidential election, the then-Fed chair did exactly the same thing, took their foot off the brake during the presidential election year, so they weren't blamed. Now inflation was not under control then, so it was uh, a cautionary tale. But nevertheless, even though Jay will never admit it, he is influenced by how his policies influence the election. And who else was I hanging out with a month ago in Los Angeles? I was hanging out with this guy. I was hanging out with Ari Fleischer. Ari Fleischer, he is the former press secretary for President Bush. And we were talking about, you guessed it, the election. Now, I'm not up here to talk politics. I'm not taking sides. But I'm just going to tell you what he told me. He said... There's a pretty good chance that Biden isn't the nominee. And if it's not Biden, it could be Gavin Newsom, who didn't just take a little jaunt to China because he wanted to see the culture. He wanted to bolster his foreign policy creds. And it's a pretty good chance it's not Mr. T either. And by the way, before we go any further, I'm looking at my blank stare crowd here. Do you guys know who Mr. T is? <laughs> you know, I pity the fool, the A-team, Rocky Three. A lot of blank stares out there. Uh, there we go. Here, there you go. By the way, he was friends with Nancy Reagan. It's a very interesting little factoid there. But you saw what happened in the debate yesterday. Nikki Haley has certainly got momentum, notwithstanding some of the bumps she's hit in the road recently. And Chris Christie dropped out. It's exactly what he said was going to happen. He said that Iowa and New Hampshire, if one of them drops out, all of the voters go in that direction. It's a very tight race who gets the nomination between Mr. T and Ms. Haley or Mr. DeSantis. But fear not whether it's Biden or Mr. T. We've been studying political events for the last 50 years, and it has limited impact on the trajectory of the economy. So I know we have terrible geopolitical events going on in Europe and the Middle East. We have the presidential election. They are terrible from a humanitarian standpoint and social issues, but from an economic perspective, limited impact, though there is some short impact. So this is a picture of boats traveling around the world right now, and you'll see one big gap of where there are no boats in the Middle East right now. And what does that cause? It's inflationary. It makes it more expensive to go around the Horn of Africa than it does through the Suez Canal. But I will say this, notwithstanding our research which shows presidential elections, geopolitical events have limited impact, to quote the great philosopher Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> But don't take it from me. Let's hear from one of the industry leaders, Kathy Marcus, COO of PGM, on what's happening in commercial real estate. To me, this is totally different. I don't think that it bears any resemblance to uh, the savings and loan crisis or to the global financial crisis in that one of the main differences between the market that we're in right now and both of those situations is that generally with 
the possible exception of very commodity office. Generally, fundamentals are not bad. Generally, fundamentals are quite good in all asset classes. Yes, it's softening. We're seeing a, a flattening of rents in industrial. We're seeing a softening of multifamily rents with increased concessions. But retail and hotels are going gangbusters. I just took a look at data this morning from my good friend and professor at University of Denver who does this thing known as the cycle monitor. First time I've ever seen retail is blowing the doors off of all other asset classes right now because they're not building any more of it. And there it is again, FOMO and YOLO. And what does all this mean for deal flow? So, well, we think it's going to be a slow year. This year, it's going to be better than last year. And the reason why it's going to be better than last year is there's a whole lot of money out there waiting to get in. Now, they could be waiting for a while because people are not dumping assets like they did in the RTC days in the early 1990s. And in the global financial crisis, they put them in a side pocket. But nevertheless, once the coast is clear, it will get clear quickly. Here's another thing that will surprise you. This is where values are across all asset types today. And you'll see that in the worst one, office, down by about 30%, and the rest are down by a little bit less than that. You should, you're saying to yourself, huh, I thought things were worse than that. Well... They are, but this is only based on assets that actually trade. It's not based on their spot market value if you had to liquidate because what a value of an asset is isn't a distress sale. The value of an asset is when a willing buyer and a willing seller do an arm's length transaction not under duress, and that's not what you're seeing. But these are the transactions that happen, and many of the transactions that are actually taking place today are transactions that either have seller financing or assumable financing. But do you know who's providing a heck of a lot of seller financing that is keeping asset values up? The government. So there were two big trades that took place late last year with respect to the bond portfolios of Signature and, Sig and Silicon Valley Bank. Do you know what the government was providing in terms of leverage? 70, 70% loan to value at 4%. Below market interest, high LTV, kept asset values higher than you think they will be. Fundamentals, where are they? Let's hear what Tom Petty has to say. Okay, that's actually not true, but certainly gives you the impression like, oh my God, the sky is falling. It's not true. Fundamentals are actually quite good. Even in the best office and the best sub-markets, we have plenty of buildings here in Chicago that have fully occupied building asking $70, $80 a, rent, a year rent right now. The problem with those buildings isn't the tenancy. The problem with them is they have loans coming due that they can't pay back. So... And I'll say one other thing. I know this is an occupier room, so I'm going to give you an occupier tidbit. I speak to the biggest occupiers in the world every day, just like I speak to the biggest investors. And the big occupiers often come to me and say, oh, we're holding all the cards. We're going to walk in there, ask for low rent, high TI allowances, several years of free rent. You know what you're going to get when you make that kind of ask? You're going to get a see you later because landlords can't afford those kind of transactions right now. And even though this is counterintuitive, your best friend as an occupier is a strong, well-capitalized landlord. 
every time. The last thing you want is to be the last tenant standing in a building that goes back to the bank. But retail, why is retail doing so well? Let's hear what Adam Ifshin has to say, CEO of DLC Management. There is no new supply coming to retail. And I think the corollary to what we talk about, which just is the jet fuel of why it's the best real estate investment class right now in all of CRE, is that we were wildly oversupplied in 2007. One of my dear friends said, we're not overbuilt, we're under demolished. What does that sound like to you? Under demolished. Class B office. Now I'm going to get it to you straight. It ain't easy to convert any office building into multifamily. And so we work with a lot of big architectural firms, and we agree that only 5 to 10% of all that stock is even conceivably convertible based upon structural issues because when you have a big floor plate, you got to drill what's known as a light and air hole through the building. That causes structural problems in some of these buildings. The other thing is simply the cost. And we had a guest on the weekly take that said that they have to buy these buildings at 50 bucks a foot or less for them to even consider it, given how challenging the math is. So what do you do about this? So we've met with the mayor here in Chicago and other big cities, and many people are offering financial incentives. This is what I recommend to our clients anytime you run into a political type, and I run into them all the time because I'm part of the real estate roundtable, so I'm in front of the feds weekly. I say to them, I don't want your money. I just don't. I don't want your tax money. I don't want a dollar for my building. What I want you to give me is my time. I want you to reduce the permitting time to convert this building from office into multifamily, from the three, four-year never-never land to six months. And you know who did that? Calgary. One city did it, and it's a success story. And next time you see an elected official here, tell them, I don't want your money, I want my time, and they'll put them on their heels they probably won't do it, but that is the solution. The other thing is this, don't lose faith in Chicago, notwithstanding the fact I gave you a very positive video. There are some people who are pretty negative on big cities. But I have somebody here, a late great leader of our industry, who's got great things to say about big cities. Let's hear what Sam Zell had to say on the weekly take. Well, I'm only almost 80 years old, and so I only have the benefit of maybe five or six times dealing with the prediction that New York was done for. And I never believed any of those, and uh, I don't believe it now. I don't believe it either, and we should give a shout-out to Sam Zell, who passed away about a year ago, who was a Chicago real estate legend, one of the true founders of our business. But nevertheless, he's right. Big cities aren't going anywhere. And they're going to come back because of all the reasons I showed in my original video. But I'm just going to give you a little piece of tough love here. We're not in the real estate business, folks. We are in the finance and labor business. And if you didn't believe we were in the finance business, take a look where the market is right now. If you don't believe we're in the labor business, believe it on this chart. This is the most important chart in today's presentation. It is the quality of the talent pool in Chicago versus other cities. And it's not bad, 23rd on the list. But you want to keep moving up on this list so that people put their headquarters here, not their back offices. And I'm going to say one other thing. You're not going to want to hear this either. I'm giving love, tough love, but it's love. 
Even though I put in my video the affordability thing on Chicago, that is not your calling card. Affordability is a race to the bottom. There's always a place that's cheaper than Chicago. And by the way, on a relative basis, there are a lot of places that are cheaper than Chicago. Your win point is the quality and depth of your labor force, even if things get more expensive. I was just in Boise, Idaho, three times last year. You know how many times I'd been there before last year? Zero. And when I was in Boise, they were all complaining about how expensive multifamily was getting. And I'm like, folks, that is a high-class problem to have. So Chicago has some high-class problems. And now I'm going to show you the other slide I can drop the mic on. This is the recent Tech 30 report on our top tech sub-markets. Ba-dum-bum. River North came in second in this year's survey. Chicago came in third overall, but River North came in second. Are we in River North right now? We're close to it. So see that I can just drop the mic right here. But I'm not going to drop the mic. I'm going to do something completely different. I'm going to pick up the mic because I'm sitting in the audience here today is our local Chicago research director, Marissa, who's going to tell us all about why Chicago is a great place. Marissa, take it away. Hi, thanks so much, Spencer. It's really great to see everyone here today. I wanted to talk about a few things that my team has our eye on this year as related to the local office market in 2024. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is life sciences and lab space. This has been one of those sectors where locally, you know, we've been saying if you build it, they will come for a few years now, and it's finally happening. In the fourth quarter, one of our key lab buildings, 1375 West Fulton, reached 98% leased after signing a deal with a company called Monosol, really interesting company that makes that film you see on laundry and uh, dishwasher detergent pods. So that building's full. If you go a couple blocks away from that building at 400 North Aberdeen, we just had the grand opening of Chan Zuckerberg Biohub really exciting biomedical research facility that's a $250 million investment from Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. And they've, they've recruited some of our best and brightest locally to work at this place. If we think about life sciences supply, we have a couple more lab buildings set to deliver this year, both Trammell Crow projects, Hyde Park Labs and Evanston Labs both of which will continue to spread the high-quality lab supply across the city. The next thing I wanted to touch on is build-out costs. We just completed our second annual study of local construction build-out costs in partnership with our project management team. And what we're seeing is that the pace of escalations is easing. So things are getting more expensive, but at a slower clip. And we expect it'll return to historic norms of about 3% to 6%. And that said, we do think there could be some short-term savings to be had on these projects. As there's just less leasing in the office market and less projects to go around, we could see more competitiveness among contractors. And then when we talk about lead times, which have been a challenge with these projects, most of them are trending in the right direction. So to give you an example, drywall that would have taken months to get in 2022 is now taking weeks to get. Uh, and finally, I wanted to touch on retail, which we know is so important to get people back downtown and back to the office. And like Spencer said, retail really continues to surprise us. Um, 
especially in Chicago. In the first half of 2023, Chicago actually took home the top spot nationally for retail net absorption. So this speaks to continued strong demand locally and a supply-constrained market. If we zero in on dining and restaurants, there's some really interesting data from Open Table that shows dining reservations in Chicago are increasing at a much higher rate than national averages. So we're talking about 7% increases compared to about 1% nationally. And I know we can't entirely attribute this to the show The Bear, but it can't hurt that we have a great TV show out there that's giving our amazing award-winning dining scene you know, the national global platform it deserves. So life sciences demand, pace of construction cost escalations easing, and then a retail renaissance, those are all bright spots that we expect will help the office market this year as it resets and recovers. Thanks so much. Back Thank you. Let's hear from Marissa. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. And I'm glad that Marissa ended with the whole restaurant scene because uh, I go to the same restaurant every time and I seat in the same seat every time I come to Chicago. So last night I went to Gene and Giorgetti, <laughs> sat in the corner, got there early, had my food. So I know it probably won't make the bear because it's not hip, cool, young, fresh, or any of those things. I did add a few dollars to the Chicago retail economy. Okay, so let's now talk about some of the other classes. So industrial. This is a pic picture of a ship in the Suez Canal. This was before the current Middle Eastern crisis. But it speaks to what's happening today. We're beginning to see more reshoring, not just of distribution industrial, but manufacturing industrial. And that's due to geopolitical tensions, uh, increased costs, in China. As a matter of fact, because of that, we're seeing a change in capital flows. We're now seeing the number one investor in Mexican industrial is China by a lot because they're taking a lot of the money that would have been invested in China and putting it there. So people are changing their directions for a reason. But there's another reason people are changing their direction on dollars to the Americas and specifically here to America, which of course is the CHIPS Act. Folks, if you didn't like Tom Petty, you're going to hate this one. <laughs> oh, you all remember that theme song, don't you? And what is the CHIPS Act? The CHIPS Act is the act that brings manufacturing back to the United States, particularly in ships. And I was just in New Albany, just outside of Columbus, Ohio, where they just got the new Intel plant. Extremely important to real estate because even though most of you in this room are not in, some of you are ancillary in manufacturing, but most of you are not directly in manufacturing, you are in other forms of real estate and you want to build what you're building around it. Office, retail, multifamily, that's exactly what's happening in New Albany, that's exactly what's happening in Austin with Elon Musk's new six million square foot Tesla plant. But now that I've made my point, I am not going on with this presentation, unless somebody could name the two characters on this show. Ponch and John, okay, that's the easy part. Name the actors. Who said Larry Wilcox? That is only the second person to be able to name Larry Wilcox and all... Oh, that's crap! Oh! Would anybody else 
else we've got? Larry Wilcox. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well done, sir. Well played. Well played. Now, when I was with uh, Paul Ryan, the reason I like Paul Ryan is in addition to his great insights on what's going on out there, is that Paul is exactly the same age as me. And so he got every single one of my trivia questions right. He did not get Larry Wilcox, by the way, but he got them all right. But one that he got right, and folks, you're going to hate this one. For those people who remember their childhood on Saturday nights, you started off your childhood on Saturday nights watching The Love Boat. What show did you watch next? I told you, it's going to get rougher and rougher as... I am clairvoyant on what these people are going to say in this room. It's like amazing. How did you know they were going to say that? <laughs> multifamily. So I'm a big multifamily advocate. This is, of course, the Jetsons. And in this particular episode of the Jetsons, a large machine came by and just dropped floor after floor and was able to build a multifamily job in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> I wish we could do that here because we're at least... 5 million housing units short in the United States of what we would consider equilibrium. And we're particularly short on the affordable end of the scale. And it's only getting worse. And it's particularly getting worse in places like California. So people are considered to be, quote unquote, housing poor if they have to pay 30% or more of their take-home pay in housing costs. The average citizen of California today pays more than 50% of their take-home pay in housing. Staggering. So we need more of it. So the good news here is that we're seeing more and more of my institutional investors pile into affordable. Part of it's for ESG reasons, the S in ESG. But part of it is just good business because affordable housing Number one is inflation adjusted. Number two, it's remote from uh, rent control risks. And number three, the demand for it is insatiable. As I suggested today, five million new units easily could be absorbed. The biggest problems with affordable housing is twofold. The macro problem, calling it by what people call it, nimbyism, not in my backyardism. Good luck getting an affordable housing project in an affluent neighborhood. Good luck. The second reason is on the micro level, there's just not enough low-income housing tax credits to make these things affordable for the builder. And when you say affordable for the builder, it's relevant because it costs the same amount of money to build an affordable job as it does to build most non-affordable jobs. Office. Hang in there with me, office. But this is what most people think about what's happening in office today. Now, you should know that was my favorite Tom Petty song as a kid, because it was one time he really ventured into, like, hippie rock and psychedelic. But you know who was the first country rock star who got into hippie rock? Kenny Rogers. Gambler, coward of the county, Lucille, islands in the stream, that Kenny Rogers, this Kenny Rogers. I just dropped in See what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. 
That has nothing to do with today's presentation. I just thought it was a very interesting little factoid. But who's coming back to the office and why? Well, we've done studies on this, and I can give you a 1,000 statistics, but it really boils down to this. If you look at it by company type, it's larger companies in finance that are leading the charge, smaller companies, companies in tech, and law firms are challenged in getting people back into the office. On the weekly take the other day, we just had the head of a major U.S. law firm, Oric, on the show, and young lawyers are fighting going back to the office. I was a young lawyer myself. So what I'm going to say applies to me as much as anybody else that is a younger lawyer. Because in addition to being a lawyer myself, I went to the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And my undergraduate major is in labor. And the reason why people aren't going back to the office has nothing to do with the office. It's a good old-fashioned labor versus management dispute. And how long have there been labor versus management disputes? Mm -hmm. 4,000 years. <laughs> and sometimes management has more power. Sometimes labor has more power. And when you're dealing with a situation today where the unemployment rate is near record lows, it was no coincidence that the United Auto Workers went on strike at the same time that the writers went on strike, that the artists went on strike, and white-collar workers on Seattle went on strike. It's because of relative bargaining power. And so you're not going to see the new normal, even though McKinsey thinks we're at the new normal, unless and until we see that unemployment rate rise and these leverage between employers, employees change. Now, when are people coming back to the office? I don't even know why we bothered to do this particular survey, because I knew I could have guessed this result perfectly. Not Mondays and Fridays, Wednesdays. And what's pe bringing people back into the office? Well, here are the usual suspect amenities. People are like food. They like open air space. They like shared meeting space. But here comes the blasphemy portion of today's presentation. I was with a large employer here in the Midwest a couple of months ago, and I asked her, how are you getting people back to the office? Well, one was not controversial. She said, well, one of the ways we're getting people back is by giving them subsidized parking in the building, because that particular city had some crime issues. People were concerned about walking the streets. But here is where blasphemy comes in. This is blasphemy one of two. Anybody know what the number one amenity really is in the office? People. Thank you. People. Good that is the answer. Other people. And whatever it takes to get other people back into the office is what you got to do. And what did they do? Here's the blasphemy. They gave senior executives their offices back in exchange for being in the office three or four days per week. Oh, I, that was a cringy comment. I saw some cringes over here. Did he really say that? Oh, painful. It's true. I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm saying that was told to me. Now, but I will give you the way I interpret that answer and the way you should interpret that answer. COVID was like the earth being hit by a meteor. That's the impact on our economy and how we look at live, work, and play. And if you think the assumptions we made about what was the optimal workplace design pre-COVID applies today, think again. 
I'm not saying giving people their offices back is the right thing to do. All I'm saying is that that's what this one company did. And after I do this presentation today, I bet you a dollar, three people are going to walk up to me and whisper in my ear the same thing. A lot of people are talking about it. Not necessarily the right thing. Works for some people. But let me tell you what works for some other people. This is the second part of blasphemy of today's presentation. I've got a pocket full of blasphemy. So I was down in Mexico City the other day. And one of my favorite places to visit. And if you have lunch in Mexico City, you should know a couple of things. First of all, lunch starts at 2 o'clock, and it lasts till 5. The second thing is, people are drinking at lunch. And what we are drinking at lunch, typically, we were having micheladas. Anybody here know what a michelada is? It's fantastic. Half beer, half Bloody Mary, sounds gross. Don't knock it till you try it. Really good. So we're sitting there drinking micheladas with the largest real estate owners in the country of Mexico. And somebody ordered a round of tequila shots. And I said, uh-oh, this is about to get real. <laughs> so somebody hands me a tequila shot. And somebody says, salute. So I did not want to cause an international incident. So I take my shot. And as I'm putting my glass back down, I'm staring at nine people standing next to me, all holding full glasses of tequila. <laughs> and I look around, I'm like, um, what's up? And somebody says, you don't slam tequila like this, you sip it. And I said, the next time you hand an American a tequila shot and say salud, it better come with better instructions. <laughs> but I have a broader point here, folks. And here's where the blasphemy comes in. You're all good people, all good business people. I've been to more business dinners than everybody in this room by at least triple. I do this every day. And you know who doesn't like business dinners? Me. <laughs> you know what I like? Business lunches, like this one. And you know why? Because when I was a kid, I had an unusual childhood. My father was a real estate partner at a big law firm. And he decided when I was eight years old in 1978 to start bringing me to lunch with his clients. This was Mad Men time. This was three martinis and Lord knows what else. <laughs> Folks, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to give people reasons to come back to the office during the day. Every other country I visit, people have a glass of wine or a beer at lunch. <laughs> here, it's blasphemy. I'm just saying, I'm not advocating anybody drink at lunch, but I've just asked all the waiters for tequila shots for everybody in it. No, I did not do that. <laughs> what I am saying, if we shifted people's expectation that nine to five meant nine to five, not 24 hours a day because of my phone, people will come back and maybe a beer, wine, or other does not end the world. Okay, let's have some fun. Oh, we had applause for that line, too. <laughs> See that? Tequila shots on this fellow over here. All right, we're going to have some final thoughts, and we'll take some questions. Final thoughts. All right. There's a method to this madness, believe it or not. 
Why did I show you this song by Tom Petty? Why did I show you Pulp Fiction clips? Why did I show you funny videos? Why do I do this stuff? Because I have a life outside of real estate. And that life outside of real estate helps me with my life inside of real estate. So let me tell everybody a story. Do you remember back in the early days of COVID, in March through June, there was no professional sports on TV? You remember that? You know what was on TV? Horse racing. Do you know how many horse races I had watched in my life until March of 2020? Zero. And I said, well, this is the only thing on TV. There must be something to it. So I started watching it, and I was like, well, what is this all about? And I didn't really care so much about the gambling. I didn't really care about the race itself. But then I started digging into the statistics, and I had an epiphany. Horse racing has the best, deepest data set of data I have seen in any industry in my life. The data goes back 150 years. It is real data because somebody putting a dollar on something is very different than a survey that says they're happy or something. And there have been hundreds of PhD-level articles written on horse racing. So me, Mr. Stats Guy, read a lot of them. And he reached one basic conclusion. And it's in all these articles. The favorite horse is always materially overbet. And the underdog is always materially underbet. And you think, well, well, why? Psychology. People like to bet on a winner. People don't want to take the added risk adjusted return on the underdog. What does that remind me of? Reminds me of Chicago. Reminds me about the office sector, some of these less favored sectors. I have a lot of investors who won't invest in Chicago. And that is the opportunity. Because you can get some of the best real estate with the best demographics around it in all of the asset classes at a significant discount to what you can get elsewhere. And the fact that investors aren't there can help you get better returns. So expand your mind. Go to the movies, listen to music, watch horse racing, and think about how it applies to your business, and you'll be a better real estate investor. Or, like me, you can pick the long shot horse in Laurel and win a lot of money, and the owner allowed me to stand in the winner's circle. Thank you very much. <laughs> We've got time for a few questions here. Who would like to ask a question? We got a mic, or you can shout it out. Okay, thank you. Hey, Spencer. Uh, you mentioned that we're about 5 million units short on affordable housing. Yes? Yes. And let's say those 5 million units are created. Does that mean we are then assumed 5 million units over leverage of more expensive housing? And does that then mean that the expensive housing drops in price, making it then more affordable? Well, it's, it's a combination of the two. I mean, the reality is, is in single-family homes, in for-sale single-family homes, there's a concept in economics which is known as sticky prices downward. They don't move down that much. If you take a look at the historic pricing of single-family homes, they may flatten. You will see in a severe recession some drops in some of these high-growth areas, and you're seeing some of that today in places like the Sun Belt, Phoenix in particular. Not Florida, but the Sun Belt. But no, I think what you're likely to see is a flattening or more of a flattening of the prices of 
single family uh, and other rental units. Uh, but the bottom line is we need these units so badly that actually if you looked at this morning's inflation report, do you know why we had a hot inflation report this morning? The price of housing. That was the number, that was 50% of the reason for the gain. Because, and it wasn't the price of rental housing, because rental housing is getting softer right now. It's because of deemed rent. So if you own a home in Lake Forest, your house, and you say, well, what would somebody rent it out for today? They'd rent it out a lot more today than they would have two years ago because interest rates are so high. So you see, there's a math thing here, buy versus sell, affordable versus not affordable. But the more units, it will help the market. It won't just help the housing market, right? Like if I was God for one day, all right, I would do two things, all right? Number one, I'd solve the affordable housing crisis, all right? The other thing I would do, and here comes blasphemy number four, I'd force every child in America, including my own, who went to private school to go to public school, all of them. And the reason why public schools are challenged today is because everybody who can opt out has opted out. And that is left behind a very challenging situation. But they go together. And you know why they go together? Because these same suburban communities, the NIMBYs, don't want affordable housing because they don't want these kids going to their, quote, schools. So they're the same issue. But if we solve one, hopefully we can solve them both. Other questions? Yes. What's your name? Hi, Spencer. I'm Kelsey Johnson. Um, I kind of want to expand on the affordable housing question because this is not a new problem. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your theories behind why this has not been solved yet? I think you kind of touched on it um, with the cost of building it, but can you kind of expand on, like, why are we still talking about this and why hasn't it been solved because this is not a new problem? Sure. So um, I did write a paper on this, so if you send me a card, I will send you the paper. But the bottom line is this, is it's everybody's fault. And when I say everybody's fault, it's not just, quote, unquote, wealthier communities. Poorer communities fight when you put new development in there, too. They call it gentrification, right? Which is a word I never understood because all it means is your, your community is growing faster, which is, you know, does it, does it price some people out? It does. But the solution is mixed income housing. The solution isn't affordable or market. It's both in the same place. So the reason why it happens is simply lo local politics, right? All politics is local. You know what's really local? Zoning. Zoning is more local than anything else, and NIMBYism is the, is the cause of the problem. Now, I've given you the bad news, okay? Here's the good news. There are some places that have been really innovative in getting new units. So one of them whether you like the guy's policies or not, is Florida. Because Florida needs units desperately. And so what they have done is they have a Live Local Act, it's, that's what the name of it is, where you are now able to convert office buildings into multifamily in an expedited fashion, just like Calgary, if you have a certain percentage of your building affordable. And now they are building them everywhere, including in high-rent districts like Battle Harbor which is the number one mall maybe in the United States, because they can. And the way these things are affordable is that they make it so that it's up to 125% of the median income in the community. So this isn't the lowest income bracket. This is folks that are teachers, firemen, servers, you name it. It's not fair for those people to have to commute two hours to work every day. Have them live in the community. So 
there's that. And on the federal level, because I do a lot of work with the roundtable, the Department of Transportation has linked certain transportation dollars for, for communities to receive those dollars. They have to reduce what's known as exclusionary zoning. And you know what exclusionary zoning is? Exclusionary zoning is the number of housing units you can have for parcel. And so a lot of units are like, oh, you ever, you ever see a movie that shows out the image of Los Angeles, just like looking out in the distance, it was in the Big Lebowski, it was in Greece, it's in a lot of movies, okay? You ever wonder why Los Angeles goes on forever? Height restrictions. Los Angeles is the poster person of bad housing policy causing this massive housing problem. They need more vertical uh, density there. So vertical density is the answer, but mixed income vertical density. I'll say one other thing. Terrific book about a unfortunately infamous housing project here in Chicago called Cabrini Green. Now Cabrini Green is a project that failed miserably for one reason, because they started to tell residents whose income went up too much that they had to leave. So it basically just kept income at the lowest and lowest rungs and it became the disaster that everybody knows. Mixed income is the solution. Cabrini Green is one great example of how, why that's the case. Yes. Hi, Spencer, I'm Peter Sullivan. You mentioned at the end of your talk about you have investors that sometimes overlook or don't look at Chicago as an investment opportunity. Could you share some reasons why you think these investors don't look at Chicago as a positive area to invest? Thanks. When I was applying for law school, I was admitted to the University of Chicago. And the dean asked me why I turned them down. I said it was one reason, the pizza. The pizza in this town, I don't know what you call that stuff. It's like lasagna, man. <laughs> All right, so no, that's not the reason, OK? The reason really, really comes down to the tax issue, uh, both locally and at the state level. Not only is it high, but you have the sword of Damocles hanging over your heads of the statewide pension fund crisis and who's going to pay for it, OK? That's, that is the actual reason. Now, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. I've done events jointly with Fritz Kage, who's your head of tax assessment here in Chicago. You should love that guy. Why? Did he raise some of your taxes? He did. But you know what he did? He created a rational floor to your taxes. He now, you don't have to guess what they're going to be. You now know what they're going to be because he's a finance person. He's apolitical. Very, very capable guy. So I think that creates an environment. People don't care whether the prices are high or low. They care whether they're certain. And that's uncertainty is what kept a lot of people out of the Chicago market. Yes, high taxes is part of it, but it really was the uncertainty of it. So that's the number one reason. All these other reasons that people cite for Chicago, particularly the crime issue, I have no patience for that issue. And the reason is I live in Baltimore, man. And I have seen it firsthand. And you know what I see in Baltimore? A lot of very successful companies, a lot of very successful real estate developers, because they know how to navigate that and other complex issues. So the number one reason is taxation and the uncertainty around it. And uh, Chairman K uh, Kage, uh, who, by the way, to his face, I called him um, Steven Spielberg. You know why? Because in the movie The Blues Brothers, at the end of the movie, they went to the Cook County Tax Assessor's Office, and it was Steven Spielberg playing. So you're Steve. In any event, 
the point is, it's taxation and the risk of more taxation is the number one reason why companies don't come, why people won't invest. And the pizza's better than I just said. I was just messing with you. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Kelly Zaremba. Um, you mentioned under the fundamentals section in your presentation, you uh, referenced hotel and that the fundamentals were quite good, but didn't really get into it. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little more on that. Sure. So there are, there's a wide panoply of hotels, okay? You have your limited service, you have your luxury, you have CBD, and you have other, okay? There are some CBD hotels that have really, really suffered and have closed down, including right near us here in the Loop, okay? And same thing in New York City. Why? Because business travelers weren't coming back, and they have an extraordinarily high cost of operation. So that's the bad news. Here's the good news. A lot of company, hotels did not go out of business, and now there's a shortage of supply. And so I must have stayed at New York City's finest courtyard by Marriott the other day because I paid 1000 bucks a night. And uh, let me tell you something. They didn't even come with free coffee in the room. But the, the, the thing was shortage of supplies is the number one reason. Number two, when you go to more of a resort location where the prices have gone through the moon, it's the YOLO FOMO thing. People are willing to spend like it's 1999. They're going to go until they can't go anymore. So those, those are two reasons. But I do worry about the luxury end of the market, or at least the full-service end of the market. Because a lot of people ask, as a, as a side note to that very same question, what about senior housing? Do you like senior housing? From a big-picture perspective, I love it. The problem is labor. The problem in full-service hotels is labor. You ever go to breakfast at the hotel in the morning, and it is what they have is called a muffin mountain. It's just a mountain of muffins. Does anybody ever eat those muffins? I don't think so. But you know why they have a, have a free muffin? Because it's cheaper to give you a free muffin than it is for somebody to serve it to you. You with me? So it's labor is the number one issue in hotels. Supply demand is helping existing stock. FOMO and YOLO help, but FOMO and YOLO are going to run out. And so I think that it's glory days. I'm not behind it forever, but it's not going to have as good of a year this year and next as it did last year. Aaron Schuster, CBRE. We met in the elevator yesterday. All right, nice to see you again. <laughs> um, wanted to go back quickly to the, the tax topic. As you know, there's a proposed mansion tax, which obviously is going to affect commercial real estate if it gets passed. Um, I know LA has passed something similar, so there maybe is some recent data points on how that's, you know, resulted in another market. I was just kind of curious, you know, what's your take on it? If, if there are other case studies that we could maybe look at that might speak to what we can expect in the short and long term. I have a deck for you, okay? Because Baltimore right now has a proposal to limit and to reverse tax increases, including on single-family homes, including the trade of single-family homes. Okay, you say, well, that's just going to reduce tax revenue, isn't it, right? That's the counter-argument. Well, there's a case study on this, and the case study is named San Francisco. San Francisco had, by far, the highest taxes in America until 1978, something in the 70s. And then they dropped taxes like a stone, like literally brought them way down. And then the tax receipts went way up because people started moving back into the city. So I forget what the politician's name was. I actually think it was Joe Biden earlier in his career, but I haven't been able to verify this, who said politics isn't about what happens when you're right. Politics is about what happens when you're wrong. So if I'm wrong, people pay less taxes and there's less money in the kitty. 
But if I'm right, I use San Francisco as an example of a city that blossomed when you reduced taxes. So look, I am not viscerally opposed to taxes. A lot of people in my position, oh, all taxes are bad. You know who didn't think taxes were bad? Ronald Reagan. You know how many times Ronald Reagan raised taxes? Five times while he was president. You know why? He needed to. So everybody says, oh, all taxes are bad. Wrong. They need to be done in a manner that fosters growth. And that needs to be the mission. And there need to be some tax-free districts. There need to be tax incentives. But as far as me to say mansion taxes are bad, I'm not going to say that. I will say they need to be targeted. I know it's to help homelessness, so yeah. I'll turn that again. Well, look, this is, this is what I will say. I don't believe in a single earmark on taxes, none of them. They say, this is to help schools. Let's put a casino in, it's gonna help schools. Cigarette taxes, they help healthcare. This tax helps homeless. That's a bunch of baloney, right? The only thing that's true is there's revenues and they either go up or they go down and they need to determine where they're going to spend it. So I'm not against getting more money to help homelessness. You know how you help homelessness? You get more housing. That's how you help homelessness. But if that doesn't help me get more housing, I don't believe the earmark, but I have no strong opinions on that. <laughs> Other questions? Any other questions? Yeah. I guess I have yes. Chicago, or uh, Chicago's number 23 on the chart you showed. Yes. San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco is number one. Does it go back to taxes? Is that one of the lessons learned? It's one of them, but it's not the main one. It is also, I mean, part of the reason why Chicago is to do well over the long term is it's got critical mass of several of the things that San Francisco does, including the university system, including Michigan, national champions. <laughs> Folks, I have an Ohio State hat in my bag, okay? Literally, I teach there too. <laughs> But no, it's not just taxes, right? It's, it's a virtuous cycle of Stanford, of Cal Berkeley, um, and the venture capital that's in the area that has all come together. And now it's really San Francisco, LA, New York. I think Chicago comes in like fifth in venture capital, but it's a huge drop off, which is why the key to this market moving to the next level is your university system. And it's not just Northwestern. It's going to be the entire Big Ten, and this is where you should be driving kids rather than going to New York, L.A., San Francisco, et cetera. But it's, it's hard. It's hard because you need to give incentive to the companies to come here, and that comes to the depth and the quality of the labor pool. As I said before, we're not in the real estate business. We're in the labor and finance business. And so improving the quality... I'll give you one other example. Arizona State University. When I was a kid... Arizona State was the place you went to watch football and drink beer. Then they added an honors program. And you know what the number one submarket in Phoenix is? Tempe. It's no accident. Same thing can happen here in Chicago. With, oh, one more question. Yes. You, you didn't touch on AI and how it might impact. Didn't I show you the robot me at the beginning? Uh, Mr. Roboto, yes. <laughs> Can you touch on AI? Sure. So part of the reason why I like the real estate business is because of that horse racing example. Our data, notwithstanding the great work that Marissa and her team do, in our business as compared to others, is terrible. And the reason why it's terrible is not because they don't book hard work, it's not because they don't put the data in accurately, it's because every building is different. This is not a commodity. Even if we had the identical tenancy here and the building next door, they're still different. 
And because of that, the data can only get you so far here. So in our business, we are less likely to be disrupted than in other businesses. Now, are there segments of our business that will be disrupted? Yes. So things that are more commoditized, like valuation. You can have programs now that can value the average building just by putting in four or five different variables right now. Very close, 95% accurate. So there are elements that are a problem, but I think that overall it will make us more productive. And I was having this conversation this morning on another podcast with, uh, by the way, George Lucas is sitting right here. Literally, his name is George Lucas. Not the Star Wars George Lucas, I might disappoint you, but George Lucas, that's just the same. And so I think if AI is used appropriately, it will do more for productivity than most technological advancements have, including the phone and personal computer. As a matter of fact, there's a great book by Robert Gordon called The Rise and Fall of American Worker Productivity. I don't recommend it because it's like a doorstop. It's a 1,000 pages long, but it's a great book. The, the rate of growth of productivity in the average American has not grown since 1974. So we need something to, to juice it. And we are an information economy, not a manufacturing economy, even though economy may come back. So I'm not afraid of the singularity. I love the movie The Terminator. Not coming out anytime soon. We're out of time. Thank you very much.